All right, guys, let me get squared away here for a minute. All right. Well, before we begin, as always, we want to pray. I need God's help, obviously, to do this. So let's go ahead and do that first, and then we'll get started. Father, we, we thank you for a day. Um, this day is especially um, wonderful to gather together to worship you through our study, through our singing, and through our fellowship together over your word. And um, today I pray for help. You know I'm nervous. You know that you know how you made me, so you know how I am. But uh, Lord, I just pray that you would speak through me, use me as your vessel, um, open the hearts of all of us here to really understand what you inspired John to write. And I just thank you again for an opportunity and the joy that it is to study your word and to bring it forth. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so you, it's crazy to think this, but way back in 2017, we got this building. Y'all remember that? Who was here when we did that? Because, all right, most of y'all. What was the first book that we did? First John, we did. I remember uh, I got a call from, actually Darren was talking to Heather at the time, and um, said to Heather, I don't think David would want to do, do this. You know, uh, He could barely get me up front to even pray. In fact, he couldn't get me up front to pray. But I went ahead and said I would, because sometimes the best thing to do is when you're scared of something is just to go and just do it, right? Um, so we began um, studying First John, and we spent nine months going through it, okay? And we, it was a great study. I was surprised at how blessed that I was, and hopefully you guys were too, going through that letter. And, but since some of you weren't here during that time, and it's been a while since we did this, I thought what I would do is go back over First John again, but this time as a series of sermons that I'll teach from each time I come up to fill in for Darren, okay? So today we're going to start with an introduction. I'll try to keep that short, but I think it's incredibly important to know why he wrote this letter and, uh, and then look at the first four verses of chapter one, okay? So when starting to study a book, it is very, very important to take it step by step to make sure that you understand who the author is, the date of the writing, the background, and the theme, along with any other important information. Doing that work ahead of time gives you a more fruitful study of the letter, okay? So in this short introduction, I'm going to remind us why John wrote this letter. And again, that is very, very much key to why. As Darren said before, you know, uh, as we study new books or books in the New Testament, they're reactionary letters. They're written because things are going on in the church, okay? And 1 John is, is also that same thing. All right, so the first step here is authorship. And like you asked this morning, TJ, who wrote 1 John? Or 1 first, or first Peter, in this case. And we all said Peter. But in this case, we run into a problem right away because John doesn't identify himself as the author of this book. So how do we know that he even wrote it? Well, we look for evidence from early documentation that points to him as the author of 1 John. Um, in the MacArthur New Testament commentary, this is, uh, says this about this topic. 
it says here, the first writer to quote directly from 1 John and name the Apostle John as its author was Irenaeus in the closing decades of the second century. His testimony, this is interesting, his testimony is especially significant since he was a disciple of Polycarp, who in turn was a disciple of the Apostle himself, right? So he's real close to the source, right? And if he says that John wrote that, he has a strong standing to say that, right? Because there's only one person in between him and John. Now, there are some other reasons, too, that John is considered the writer, and four particularly. Uh, the letter displays uh, remarkable similarities to the Gospel of John. When you look at both of them, you kind of see that. The grammar in this letter is very similar to his Gospel. The Gospel of John and this letter use words and phrases that aren't found anywhere else in the New Testament. And the same theological themes are in both works. So you're kind of looking into how, how do we know how books are written by who they say they're written? How do they go back and they figure this out? And it is a lot of study about of writings back in those days, eyewitness accounts and different things like that that are so important. So there's, in this case, a lot of good information, good historical evidence that John was the writer. Now, next we move into the date and the place of the writing. Again, we don't know exactly where he wrote it. He gives no indication of this in his letter of where he wrote it. But most likely he wrote it in the latter part of the first century. Remember, he was quite, quite a bit younger than the other disciples. He, he lived longer than all of them. And he would have written it in Ephesus. This is where it's thought to have happened. In Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, if you want to kind of visualize where that's at. And testimony from early church writers, such as Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, and Clement of Alexandria, all placed John in Ephesus during this time, where him being an aged apostle were, was overseeing the churches in that region, as, as like an elder, if you will, of those, of those churches. Now, the date, moving into that. When you're looking at the date of this, you have to look at a few things that are going on to kind of try to figure out when it was written. So the heresy of Gnosticism that John is actually addressing in this letter was just beginning to develop. They didn't even call it that. It was just it was beginning to develop at the end of the first century. And since he doesn't mention the persecution that occurred in 95 AD from the Roman government, that persecution that would ultimately have sent him to Patmos, where he received the revelation. You can put those facts together to say, well, it was probably written before 95, or he would have mentioned something about that. Also, at least 80% of the verses in 1 John reflect concepts that were found in his gospel. And the gospel was written between 80 and 90 AD. So it's reasonable to say that 1 John was written between 90 and 95 AD, while he was still alive. Now, why does that matter? What does authorship, dates, places, where this letter was written, what, what does all of that matter? Well, it's important since many who try to discredit the books of the Bible start with attacks on their authorship. They state often that the letter wasn't written by John. It was written by somebody else much, much later claiming to be John. You hear this about many books as when people are arguing with you about this. They want to discredit author the authority that the letter would have, particularly for this reason, because John was an eyewitness. He was an eyewitness to Jesus' ministry. They can discredit that 
It's powerful. I remember speaking to my, uh, my nephew while I was down in Florida for my mom's funeral. And he argued with me about the Gospel of John. And he was arguing against it being written by John. He said it was written much, much later. And all this stuff was made up about Jesus. You see, you know, just you can run into this left and right. So knowing that is important. Now, the audience of this letter, if we move into that, it's not stated in this book, but rather it was circulated among the churches, much like 1 Peter, like we studied this morning, was circulated throughout the churches in the region that John oversaw. And obviously it's gone on and on to, to many other churches, including us here today. It just keeps on blessing the church and it stays, it stays with us. So, uh, but what's interesting is that perhaps one or all of those churches were probably named in the first few chapters of Revelation. If you remember, there are seven churches that are, that are particularly mentioned in the beginning of Revelation. So the problem was that false teaching was going on, and it was permeating all these churches. So John's letter, was, it was very important that they pass this around to be able to combat this false doctrine that was going on which leads us to the purpose of the letter. John, if you remember, was one of the two sons of what? What did Jesus call them? The sons of thunder. That's a good wrestling term. Yeah, it would be a good wrestling team. But they were sons of thunder. John wasn't a meek, you know. Sometimes we see pictures of Jesus. They make him look like a meek man. John was ferocious. There's stories of him uh, especially one that I remember, he was in the bath, a Roman bath there in Ephesus, and a false teacher came in, and he gathered up his things and ran out the door screaming, you know, get out of here quick before the roof caves in because so-and-so is here, and he's a false teacher. The, you know, these are the kind of things that John would do. He was ferociously defensive of the church, okay? And he took on that false teaching head-on in his teaching. In this letter, the problem that he's addressing was that the church was being influenced by this false teaching that we would come to call later on Gnosticism. And this wasn't a surprise. Um, if we look at, and you don't have to turn here, I'll read it for you. Acts 20, 29, Paul says to the Ephesian elders, to the same church that John's writing to, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. And this happened. And this is why John is writing this letter. So in this letter, John wrote against these false teachers, and they were causing divisions in the church as they were attempting to lead others away to follow their beliefs. There was more than just one source of false teaching, but the main culprits were those holding to the set of beliefs that was eventually named Gnosticism, okay? So we've said that a few times now. So what is Gnosticism? Well, Gnosticism, from the Greek word noesis, I think I said that right, meaning knowledge, okay, was a mismatch of various pagan, Jewish, and quasi-Christian systems of thought. They taught that they had received a special revelation in addition to what has already been revealed, or they had some secret knowledge, and this led them to some rather bizarre beliefs. We hear this sometimes in other religions. I think of Mormonism, they received a whole nother testament, if you will. Um, the Scientologists, that, that uh, you have to keep paying to keep increasing in 
finding out the secret knowledge that they have and those kind of things. So what I thought we would do is we would go through, um, a, not a long list, but a, a, a list of what the Gnostics taught and then contrast it with what true Christianity believes, just to give us an idea of some of the things that they believed, okay? So let's start off with God. Regarding God, Gnosticism taught that God is the ultimate, nameless, and unknowable being often referred to as the abyss. Warms your heart, doesn't it? Um, but Christianity, on the other hand, says God is knowable. Inasmuch as he's revealed to us in his word, he is involved very closely with our lives as evidenced by the fact that we can talk to him any time. He's personal. Regarding creation, Gnosticism teaches, and stick with me here because this is pretty weird. I'll just read this to you so I don't mess it up. The fullness of the deity could only flow out in such a way that eons, or just orders of spirits, were created. The deity didn't choose this, it just happened to him. It just, they came out. The first spirits were at a high level of spirituality, very pure. The next spirits who were created were at a lower level. These spirits kept on being created lower and lower until they reached earth, where the lowest level of spirituality is found, where spirit meets matter, us. This happened to God and was not his will. Okay? That's how they spoke about creation. Now, Christianity, they say God is the creator, right? He called the creation good, which goes against the Gnostic idea that matter is evil, because they teach that matter is evil. We'll talk about that in a minute. He created because he wanted to, for his glory. Not, it didn't just happen to him, and it didn't happen outside of his control. He did it for, again, his glory. Pretty weird stuff, huh? What they, but, you know, keep in mind, too, that false religions, I think I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but that's okay. False religions often will create their own doctrine, their own ideas about things that fit what, they, what their preconceived desires are, what they, what they want to get to, what their goals are. That's what, what they, they'll construct this in order to accomplish those things. All right, so that was what they think about God, what they think about creation. Now, what do they think about evil or sin? For Gnostics, matter is evil. From their creation idea, the further a, the spiritual gets away from the deity, it eventually becomes bound to matter, which is evil. The spirit is still pure, but it is trapped inside spiritual or sinful flesh. If you think about this further, it removes the fact that evil is a free will, is of the free will of men, where they rebel against God. They believe that, that evil is an eternal power that's beyond the control of God. Since they separate matter and the spirit, they don't feel like sin is a big problem. They, don't, they feel like they could sin all they want, it's not going to affect their spirit, okay? Now, the Gnostics were also indifferent to moral values and ethical behavior. Again, since they believed that the spirit, which was good, was trapped in their body, which was evil, they concluded that they could do anything they wanted to in the flesh without affecting their spirit. 
So that's what they think about sin and evil. Here's what we say. Here's what Christianity say, says. Evil is defiance of God. It wants to dethrone God and take his place. It defies God's wisdom, righteousness, and holiness. It has no desire for grace. Scripture's overarching theme is sin, redemption, and God's plan for redemption for man. That's how we think of, of evil. Evil is through and through and is a problem that needs to be addressed. Now, regarding Christ, and this is where they really attack, okay? Gnosticism says that Christ is not the Savior who saves his people from their sins, and he is not the one who gives them deliverance from the power of sin. Instead, he is only one of the highest of, of course, they give him the highest place, obviously. He is the highest one of those eons, or those spiritual beings that emanated from the deity, okay? They do say that he's an originated being. He's a created being. He is not God. They did not, in their beliefs, have any kind of need for Jesus because there was no problem of sin to deal with. And if there's no problem for sin, of sin, there's no need for a Savior, right? So, influenced by Greek philosophy, especially that of Plato, Gnosticism taught that matter was inherently evil and spirit was good. That philosophical dualism led the false teachers whom John confronted to accept some form of Christ's deity, but to deny his humanity. Okay, deity in the sense that he's a, he was a spiritual being. They said that Jesus couldn't have taken on a physical body since matter was evil. So their denial of the incarnation of Jesus, which is him coming to live as, with men on earth as a man, but their denial of that took two basic forms, okay? So some taught that Jesus' body wasn't real. They taught it wasn't a physical body, but it was just a phantom, that those that saw him saw a phantom, not a real body. But in sharp contrast to that, and we'll get to this in a little while, in 1 John 1, 1, John writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. John is asserting here that he had heard, he had seen, and he had touched Jesus, who had truly come in the flesh. Now, others taught, and again, remember, Gnosticism wasn't a, a strict order of a religion, if you will. It's a mishmash of, of differing, somewhat differing opinions. So others taught that Christ's spirit descended on the man Jesus at his baptism. Remember the story of the dove coming down and God saying, this is my son whom I love? Um, they said that when that happened, the, the spirit of Christ came on the man Jesus, but it left him before the crucifixion. But John refuted that argument by asserting that the Jesus who is baptized was the same person who is sacrificed or crucified. And we will see that as we go through the, the book of 1 John. That particular false teaching undermined not only the biblical teaching of Jesus' true humanity, but also of the atonement. That's, this is critical doctrine for us. 
if Jesus were not truly man as well as truly God when he suffered and died, he could not have ever been an acceptable substitutionary sacrifice for sin. He had to be 100% man and 100% God for that to happen. Now, what does Christianity say about Jesus? And I love that. I don't think you did this on purpose, but it works out this way oftentimes. Every one of our songs today was about what? It was all, they were all about, yeah, they're all about Jesus. I love that because this is what we're talking about here and this is what we're going to be talking about in the first four verses of 1 John. Christianity says that Jesus is the Christ, which means the Messiah. Jesus was fully God and he was fully man at the same time. He was sinless. Jesus died to redeem us from sin and Jesus has always existed. I just picked a few. We could go on and on and on. I have a poster in my, in my uh, living room that has, I don't even know how many names of Jesus, but it's a long, long list and little type. You have to get real close now that I'm older. You have to get really close to be able to read them all. It's important to understand that false religions love to change the facts about who Jesus is. And that's, like I said earlier, that is to open the door to write their own code of behavior and, in essence, their own theology. They strike at the basis of our faith, the foundation of it. So while Gnosticism in its ancient form has passed away, you can see elements of it throughout false religions today, okay? Especially, like I mentioned before, like Scientology is actually very clearly an example of what Gnosticism is but also New Age religions, uh, the more, even Mormonism and things like that. You see it there. So even though we don't call something Gnosticism today, those points are still with us today. John, as a pastor and a leader and a ferocious defender of the church, he couldn't stand by and allow this to go on without addressing it. In fact, most of the New, new <laughs> did this again. In fact, most of the letters in the New Testament were written to combat false teaching. As you go through the New Testament, you'll realize that's the main topic is, is confronting that. You know, we've talked about this before, but, you know, um, when they're training people how to uh, recognize counterfeit currency, how they train them is not to look at all the different, you know, different kind of false currency that's out there and learning that. They teach them by s them studying the actual legitimate bills. Once they know those actual legitimate bills by heart, then they can easily spot the false ones. And this is why in every time pretty much that we're speaking to you guys, we're encouraging you to study the Word of God. Because when you study the Word of God, more than just reading it, study it, you can spot the false teaching. You can spot the false doctrine because trust me, it's not always easy to see. And you get, and I do, I get a lot of this, and Darren gets a lot of this, a lot of times when people will um, get very defensive about a speaking about a certain teacher. But when you know the Word of God and you know what they're saying is wrong, you have to, you have to speak up. This is God's church, by the way. We can't just let anything happen. So now that we have a better understanding of why John wrote this letter, which was to combat false teaching, and it's more than Gnosticism, it was a lot of different false ideas. Let's start... Verse, uh, first John, by taking a look at the first four verses of that book. Now, 
we'll read it in just a second, but in this letter, John, just like in his gospel, he eliminated all introductions that most writers would put into their letters, okay? Where Paul writes almost like a lawyer who's presenting a defense, you know, um, John writes more like a father. He kind of almost assumes you know who it is writing, and he goes right into the subject at hand. He didn't name himself as the author. He didn't identify his audience. He just launched right into writing the Spirit-inspired truth. It's, a, it's truly an amazing letter. While not named specifically, his audience is not only Christians, so we've got to think that way. It was actually to non-believers as well. In fact, the first chapter seeks to talk to unbelievers who were embracing these Gnostic ideas. These unbelievers, most of whom probably thought they were okay with God, needed to hear this message. They needed to repent of the way that they were thinking. So with that being said, let's read the first four verses of chapter 1. Okay. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. I love that part, our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Okay, those are the first four verses of that book. And as I said earlier, he didn't include an introduction to this book, but he did write a prologue. That's kind of what this is called. It's a prologue in verses 1 through 4. And a prologue... It just establishes the context, provides important information for the rest of the letter, okay? Um, in a play, it might be called setting the scene, if you will. In Star Wars, it's that iconic scrolling text at the beginning of every movie that kind of sets the, it's called a prologue, it sets the scene, it sets what's going on as we enter into this book. And in this case, John is establishing the tangible reality of the incarnation of Jesus and his purpose for the letter, which is, which is to produce fellowship and to produce joy. So, but you might ask, probably not in this church, but you might ask, what does he mean by the word of life? He uses this phrase to refer to the person and work of Jesus Christ as proclaimed in the gospel. And there's a little bit of argument on that, but that's where I believe. And that's what I've looked at and studied and the reason I believe that is that they use the, the Greek word for word. Well, the Greek word for word is logos, okay? And the word that they use for life is zoe. And there's two words for life in Greek, zoe and bios. Bios is physical life. This is all, we're all living. But zoe is spiritual life. So John is stating that Jesus is the word of spiritual life. He is the word of eternal life. When he gives that word, when he speaks, it is speaking to our spiritual life, what he's talking about here. Okay? 
So John wrote this prologue, and when he did, he included five certainties about the word of life. And we'll look at each of these today. And that'll kind of be where we're going to settle in, okay? The five certainties are the word of life is eternal, historical, proclaimed openly, relational, and joyful. And we'll go over each one of those today. Since false teachers were attacking who Jesus was, it was very, very important that John began this letter by talking about him. He wanted to establish it right off the beginning, right at the beginning, who Jesus is. All right, well, let's start by looking at each one of these certainties, okay? So first, the word of life is eternal. Looking at the very first part of verse 1, it says, that which was from the beginning. Now, if you remember, a few Two times ago, this, two times ago when I taught, I taught First John. Actually, three times now. Um, and at the very beginning of the Gospel of John, in, in verse one, chapter one, he says, "In the beginning was the Word." You're all familiar with this. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So you see how he's starting kind of the same, a little bit shorter, but he's starting at the same. This word, or word of life, that John refers to is the Lord Jesus, the Messiah. John states that he has always existed as God. In fact, the Greek translated in verse 1, chapter 1 of the Gospel of John, the Greek word translated as the word was with God, that phrase, literally means two personal beings face to face having intelligent discourse. For all of eternity, Jesus enjoyed intimate fellowship with the Father. He was there with the Father. And that was good enough. That's all they needed. We see this documented in the Gospel of John, where Jesus is praying to the Father and longing to be with him again. Let's turn to John 17 and look at verse 5. If you want something that lifts your spirit and gives you much joy. Read this today, later, maybe read chapter 17. Read Jesus praying to God. It's almost like eavesdropping in on a conversation between the Godhead. But he says in verse 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Jesus was longing to be glorified in God's presence. Je Jesus loved us and knew what he had to do, and he was obedient to do it. But make no mistake, he wanted to be back with the Father in his presence. And he was always with the Father. Even when he was here, he prayed with the, in the, with the Father every single day, talking, talking and communicating with him to help him through this. But he came into the world because he knew that he needed to save that which was lost. He became one of us, but he was always God. He never ceased to be God. He was 100% man, 100% God, what the theologians call the hypostatic union. Hard to understand it, but that's who he was. It was critical, again, I want to repeat this, it was critical, again, that he was both fully God and man. 
so that he could be the substitutionary, perfect sacrifice that would satisfy the debt of sin. He had to be a perfect sacrifice, and he had to be 100% God and 100% man in order to do it. Nobody else could ever do what he did. By attempting to change who Jesus was, by stating that he was anything else other than fully God and fully man, was a direct assault on the most important truth of our faith, saying that he was a phantom or that a spirit came on him and then left him. All of those things was an assault on our faith. Jesus was, is, and will always be the target of false teachers. They will always attempt to change the facts about who he was. John was dealing with the seeds of Gnosticism, and it was already causing confusion among the members of the churches in Asia Minor. Its teachers denied the full deity and humanity of Jesus Christ, and therefore, his true nature essential to the gospel. They further claimed to have attained, apart from the gospel, apart from any kind of thing like that, they, they said that they claimed, or claimed to have attained a transcendent knowledge of the divine, available only to the spiritual elite and otherwise beyond the reach of the common person. What are they after there? Obviously, they're after power. They're after control, which is what often false teachers want. With a simple opening statement, John establishes that the gospel message concerning the word of life is permanent, unalterable, and available. It was not secret knowledge. He states that the gospel message or the good news of the word of life has been here since the beginning. Turning from your sins, placing your faith in Jesus, and following after him was important for John to begin to communicate openly. And he did this openly. So did all the other apostles. So next, he, the word of life is historical. That's the next certainty. The first one was eternal. The second one is historical. In this one, we'll, we'll look at the last part of verse 1 and the beginning of verse 2. Okay? Let's read that. Which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. And that's where we'll stop. Now, there are four ways here that John states that he perceived the word of life. He writes that he had seen, oops, that he'd heard, seen, looked at, and touched Jesus. It's so amazing. It's so amazing when I was reading this and thinking about what John had seen. It's, it just blew my mind when I really started thinking about this. So, but what, what did he hear? What did John hear? He heard the Lord speak. He listened to his teaching and wondered at his parables. He, together with the twelve, was taught privately by Jesus. Imagine that, privately by Jesus, the meaning of those parables. John spent three years with Jesus and was an eyewitness to his earthly ministry. Well, what did he see with his eyes? John includes something interesting here. In order to combat the idea of Jesus being some kind of a spirit or some phantom, as the false teachers and the Gnostics said, he mentions that they saw with their eyes. In order to make sure that the reader understood that this was not some kind of a spiritual vision of some kind of a phantom Jesus, but they saw a real physical Jesus. 
But then he goes on to say that he, that he let me see, get this right, that he had looked at, but he just said that he had seen with his eyes. What does he mean by he looked at? Well, the Greek word here means a long searching gaze. For three years, they saw Jesus in his public ministry and were also with him privately. Okay? They saw his power over spirits and death. They saw that he had the power to forgive sins and grant eternal life. John states here in the Greek that he examined what Jesus was doing. He listened to what he said. He saw what he did. And he witnessed his sinless sinlessness, his power, his death, and his resurrection. This is different from just seeing. So he saw the physical Jesus. He established that. But, but beyond seeing it, he perceived and he, he examined and he, he heard and he thought about what Jesus was teaching. And it was proven out by the way that Jesus lived as well. On a much smaller basis, this is why it's better for you to study the Word of God rather than just looking at it, all right? And just doing a quick reading because the depths of going through it change your life. You can't go into the depths of the Word of God and, it, and have it not affect you. It will affect you. It changes the way that you look at things. Finally, John also touched Jesus. He touched Jesus' physical body. Again, a very important thing for him to communicate. During the Last Supper, Jesus washed their feet. He touched their feet, washed their feet. During this time together, they physically touched each other. Remember John, what he was doing at the Last Supper? He leaned against Jesus' breast. He was physically contacted each other. John states this because he was an eyewitness of these events and he wanted to make sure that the reader understood that Jesus was real and he had a real body. He really existed. John experienced Jesus intimately. He heard Jesus speak. He saw him. He witnessed his ministry firsthand. And yes, he touched him. To John, Jesus was as real as you or I. Now John begins verse 2 by making a statement that Jesus had appeared. Or in some of your translations, it might mean that the life was manifested, depending on what you have. But the word here means to reveal or make visible what was hidden. God did not reveal himself in human flesh until Jesus. So to say he appeared or to manifested means that Jesus came to earth to reveal himself to mankind and to communicate the kingdom of God. An unknown writer penned these words, and it shows the practical implications of what John states in these first two verses. I am glad that my knowledge of eternal life is not built on, spe on the speculations of philosophers or theologians, but on the unimpeachable testimony of those who heard, saw, gazed at, and handled him in whom it was incarnate. It is not merely a lovely dream, but solid fact, carefully observed, and an accurately recorded fact. I thought that was pretty profound because oftentimes when we are questioned 
pushed, argued with. They often call us quaint that we believe in that book of superstitions and stories. But we don't. These are facts that, was, that were communicated by eyewitnesses and documented by early writers. There's so much early material that points to the inerrancy of Scripture, the, the fact that it really is what it says it is, and it really is truth. Now, since John was an eyewitness, his claims about Jesus held the most weight. Think about this. If Jesus hadn't rose from the dead, then why in the world did the eyewitnesses suffer and die in persecution? There is no reason why they would have. They wouldn't, they wouldn't recant their faith or say that it didn't happen because they knew it did. And all 12 of them, minus John, who did get persecuted but didn't die from it, were killed for their faith. And that's just the 12 of them, not speaking about all the other countless ones who also saw Jesus and also were persecuted and died. That holds a lot of weight when eyewitnesses, because people could die for things that they don't know about. They could be fooled into it. You see it all the time in the Muslim world where they'll blow things up, but they don't know that that. They're not eyewitnesses to anything. These guys died for what they saw and they knew was real and what had happened. Praise God that he inspired these apostles, who, the, who these eyewitnesses were, to write what they did. We do not have an un uninformed faith, guys. What we believe is not a fairy tale, but true historical fact. It's documented, it's witnessed, and it's communicated to the world, which brings us to the next certainty. So eternal, historically, historical, and thirdly, the word of life is proclaimed openly. Let's look at the second part of chap uh, verse 2 in chapter 1, like back in chapter 1 there. And we're going to read through the beginning of verse 3. We have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and what we have heard I added that little part, sorry. What have you heard? So John refers to Jesus as the Word, the Gospel, and now the eternal life. Just these different names that he had for Jesus. The false teachers taught that they were the holders of secret wisdom. That others who are not as spiritual, they had never understand. But John wrote that he and others openly testified and proclaimed the gospel of eternal life, which is Jesus. He wrote that they had reported what they have seen and told others. They didn't hold it back. They didn't keep it secret. They didn't claim to have secret knowledge that you had to do certain things to find out. They openly proclaimed it in public. Not only that, Jesus' ministry wasn't secret. It was public. He did it out in, in, in the open amongst all the people. Now, John saw it as a responsibility to report what he had written. Let's turn to John, back to John, the Gospel of John. We're going to go to chapter 20, and we're going to read verses 30 and 31.
30 and 31. Therefore, I'm going to read this from the NASB. This might sound a little different. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written, and this is the purpose statement of, God, of his gospel. These have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So what he wrote here, he didn't write everything that had happened. In fact, we'll go to the, the next passage here. It'll say there probably isn't enough paper in the world to write everything that happened. But he wrote what, what, he, what he needed to communicate in order for you to believe in Jesus. Let's turn just a few pages to chapter 21, and we'll look at verses 24 and 25. These are actually the last two verses of the gospel. What it says here is, we're starting in 24, This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which, if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Jesus was active and working during his whole ministry. And John, as an eyewitness, said, hey, I can't even include, I don't have paper to include everything he did. So his eyewitness account is powerful. And now, as the last one alive of the apostles at this time, you can see the importance of this letter of 1 John to combat these false teachings. He's the last of the eyewitnesses of the, of the disciples. This is also an example for us. When the disciples were with Jesus, he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of heaven. And before he ascended, he commanded them to make disciples of all nations in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Okay? We, in turn, have the responsibility to proclaim Jesus to the world. The only way people can gain fellowship with the Father and the Son is by hearing, believing, and following. Now this leads us to the rest of verse 3. Fourthly, the word of life is relational. 1 John, the end of first 3, of the end, in 1 John, uh, first chapter, the end of verse 3 says, so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the father and with his son jesus christ this is why he's proclaiming this openly is to so that you can have the opportunity to have fellowship with him so what's the common way that people think about fellowship and i know it's funny i just spoke about this when i went through philemon too so it seems to be a common theme but people often think about fellowship as you know meeting together uh, maybe you're watching a football. Christians love to use this word too. You know, you're watching a football game and you say, "Isn't this great fellowship?" And we are, or we're down in the basement over a casserole. We think of this as we call it the fellowship hall, and so on and so forth. But it's more than that. The Greek word for fellowship is a familiar one, especially to us. It's koinonia, which signifies a mutual participation in a common cause or a shared life. However, to believers. Fellowship is more than just a partnership of people with similar thinking. Otherwise, it would just be the Moose Club or the Elks Club or whatever club you're in, the Mickey Mouse Club, whatever. Um, but to believers, the fellowship comes from the fact that we are in one spirit and have a mutual love 
and a mutual life together in Christ. Our salvation provided through our faith in Jesus because of his great sacrifice not only gives us fellowship with God, but also fellowship with each other. It's all together. When we spend time like this here today, we are experiencing fellowship. And the beautiful thing is that this fellowship will continue even after we're all with him and all of this has passed away. We'll be in eternal fellowship with the Father, with the Son, with the Holy Spirit, and with each other. Lastly, of those things that John is expressing here, is that the word of life is joyful. Verse 4 says, We write this to make our joy complete. With all that John has written in these last few verses, why does he end with joy? It's an interesting question. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote the following about the joy a Christian experienced. Joy is something very deep and profound, something that affects the whole and entire personality. In other words, it comes to this. There is only one thing that can give true joy, and that is contemplation of the Lord Jesus Christ. He satisfies my mind. He satisfies my emotions. He satisfies my every desire. He and his great salvation include the whole personality and nothing less. And in him, I am complete. Joy, in other words, is the response and the reaction of the soul to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is where John's getting at. When you know all these things about Jesus, it produces joy. It also produces fellowship, but it produces joy. Joy has nothing to do with your circumstances. Joy comes from knowing Christ. In John 15, back in the gospel, John 15, 9 through 11, Jesus said this, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. This is where we need to be. This is where we need to rest. This is where we need to go when all those other things in life are going on. We need to go to the feet of Jesus, experiencing that joy, experiencing that fellowship. Joy is the result of discovering that Jesus is eternal, historical, proclaimed openly, and relational. We have joy through understanding the reality of Christ with the saving truth of the gospel. We have joy through fellowship with fellow believers. A believer's life brings joy in these things. The false teachers wanted to make Jesus less than who he is, but the testimony of John and eyewitness not only questioned what they were trying to sell to the churches, but destroyed it. Unfortunately, there were many who believed these lies, and those lies are still with us today and probably will be until God destroys them completely. But we have a responsibility to know Scripture, to be able to refute false teaching. And that is certainly the purpose of this letter. And I look forward to being able to share more of that with you guys as we go through it. 
But more importantly than this, or more important than this, we as believers and followers of Jesus can find great joy in these first four verses. Contemplating Jesus produces worship, true worship. These verses remind us who Jesus is. He is not a God who makes you jump through hoops, find some secret knowledge, climb a giant mountain to talk to a little bearded man. Jesus doesn't change. Jesus is here. He's close. He's eternal. He reveals himself through scripture and wants to have a relationship with us. But what does that lead to? It leads to a believer who has complete joy in their Savior. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you so much that John was inspired to write this letter. We've just begun today, but I'm so glad that we began by contemplating who you are, Lord Jesus. It produces joy, and I pray that we'll all walk away today wanting to be in fellowship with you, in your word, studying more, contemplating who you are, to bring joy in such an uncertain world that we live in, to have joy when persecution comes, as we learned this morning during, during Sunday school. To have joy because we know who you are. We know that you created us, you love us, and you are real. So Lord, I thank you and praise you for your word in this time that we had together. In Jesus' name, amen.